Promise no promises. Going to the limits of your longing. The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further series. Going to the limits of your longing, research as another name for care. This collection of episodes emerged from a master symposium held in spring 2021 at the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel. The contributions to the symposium were devoted to ideas and forms of artistic research that center art as a practice in service of the social. They revisit certain moments in our recent history and present of researching, producing and exhibiting art in the name of such beliefs, namely social justice. Once upon a time, or just a couple of decades ago, women artists from various and diverging geographies began to query and study the gap that has traditionally existed between artistic and non-artistic labor. As artistic labor came to be understood as more representative of society's functioning as a whole, new questions concerning the political dimension of art and the role of the artist in contemporary society came to life. Research has often been the term applied to the act of inquiring into the post-colonial past and neo-colonial present, an inquiry whose very substance gives voice to the need to revise the fundaments of our unachieved and fragile democracies, their languages, tools, forms of violence and myriad legacies. The symposium was dedicated to the memory of Marion von Osten, the artist, curator, researcher, writer and teacher whose curatorial, theoretical and altogether empathic approaches to the medium of exhibition making revolved around artistic research devoted to the collective. Under her exemplary influence, we examined the moments when exhibitions became filled with archives, with documents of testimonies and documentaries of testifying moving images. Institutions suddenly saw the need to create collective collections. It was the beginning of a transformation that, since then, has undergone many turns and many faces, but that remains at the core of understanding art as a practice that serves the social and all the forms of justice, and its opposite, that enumerated. With contributions at the symposia by Maria Teresa Alves, Ursula Biemann, Regina Bittner, Barbara Casavecchia, Anja Kirschner, Kapuani Kawanga, Maria Lind, Otto Bongkanga, Lydia Urachman and Miriam Amrun, Filippa Ramos, Kerstin Starkemeyer, as well as Yvonne Volkert and Peter Spielmann. World Making by Maria Lind, a curator, writer and educator from Stockholm, currently serving as a counselor of culture at the Embassy of Sweden in Moscow. The eighth climate, what does R2, the 11th Gwangju Biennale, will be preceded by a little preface. I want to say that I'm particularly happy to participate in a symposium dedicated to the uh, memory of uh, Marion von Osten who was not only a 
very special and wonderful person. She was a unique force when it comes to cultural production, including curating. And it is uh, in fond memory that I keep this exhibition um, that um, Marion did together with Peter Spillmann uh, at Tänsterkonsthall in 2016, uh, just to bring us into her uh, very special uh, spirit of working. It was a research-based project, which she did together with Peter and a number of other collaborators, looking at a play from 1968 by the legendary German writer Peter Weiss called The Vietnam Discourse, which was an attempt to look at Vietnam, the conflict there from a different perspective, not thinking of that geographical place as a constant uh, victim of history of oppressing powers, but also searching for other roots, other histories within its own history. And he actually traveled there with Gunilla Palmkrana Weiss, uh, the stage designer who also happened to be his uh, wife. And the exhibition that uh, Marion and Peter created in Stockholm was a mini uh, project exhibition, her very uh, special kind of exhibition, uh, which circled around this place. The exhibition included documentation of uh, the stage design for the play, which was staged the first time in Frankfurt. It was uh, hotly debated, uh, the start of what we today call documentary theater. And I think I have learned a lot of things from uh, Marion and um, I always hope that I keep uh, some of it with me and including doing uh, the Guangzhou Biennale, which I will now move on to. So here, an image which is uh, showing the top part of a champagne glass filled with oil. It's cast against a black background. The, the liquid is glistening blue, yellow and pink. It's almost like uh, the famous photos of the earth taken from space back in the 60s. Um, as one of the substances of our planet, oil is assumed to follow its physical laws, but the image here says something else. The horizon of the oil is tilted. It's creating uh, an upward slope red from the left or downward hill if you read from the right. So not only is a new geography emerging in this image, but also laws of physics that are different from the ones that we know. So I saw this image on the computer screen in Agnieszka Polska studio when I did uh, research for the Guangzhou Biennale. And I felt that it was a condensed picture of a condition somehow in which many things are askew. Looking at Tellus, our planet from a distance, however beautiful, it reveals that climate change is happening on a macro level, certainly with the use of fossil fuels uh, propelling the process. And at the same time, it shows that the micro level of individual life uh, is played out in dominant oil dependent lifestyles across the world and that this demands uh, change. The champagne glasses, as it were, are still very prominent in our world, but they're being challenged. Uh, together with the addiction uh, to oil. So printed um, on a fabric, hanging high 
in the entrance area of the Guangzhou Biennale Halls Gallery One. I think the image also points to today's image regime uh, in which images are created, circulated, proliferated and sourced digitally and online through the art world, but also beyond. And within this regime, uh, relevant artworks do maintain an active relationship to their surrounding reality, whether associatively, analytically, critically, personally, or politically so. And to engage with such artworks and to place art with this particular approach, uh, center stage, was one of the ambitions of the eighth climate, what does art do? Addressing the agency of art in relation to a revitalized and accelerated understanding of art's own relevance. Thinking of how to supplement and augment traditional understandings of art's own relevance uh, and application in the sphere, both of life and political reality, the utility of this renewed relevance does take place in the midst of what is otherwise a strong infrastructural focus in the sphere of art in many parts of the world and also in the treacherous terrains of existing public and private systems. So a central part of this interest in the performative aspect of art is its imaginative and projective uh, qualities, arts active relationship to the future. So the title, The Eighth Climate, it refers to a state which we might reach through our imaginative perception. The notion of the eighth climate or the imaginal goes back to the 12th century to the Persian mystic and philosopher Soravardi and was elaborated by the 20th century French philosopher Henri Corbin and he speaks about how while ancient Greek philosophers identified seven physical climates of the earth, the eighth climate is an additional climate which functions as an interworld between the natural and the spiritual worlds. Corbin describes the eighth climate as ontologically real and existing, but beyond our ordinary way of perceiving and understanding things. So a little bit like a mirror, which is um, not the same substance as the image which it is holding. And yet the eighth climate establishes real imaginative knowledge and function while escaping rationalism as we know it, according to uh, Corbin's reading of Soravardi. And in doing so, I think it reveals interesting parallels to how contemporary art is functioning. Two photographs, one uh, from 2016 and one from uh, 1980, which was the work by artist Dora Garcia for the Biennale. And they show a roundabout in the city of Guangzhou this is the main location of the famous uprising which happened on the 18th of May in 1980. During the time of dictatorship in South Korea, students in this city, uh, which is um, having about a million and a half inhabitants, 
were demonstrating against martial law. Um, and for some reason, this particular day, the government sent in the paratroopers who killed many civilians in broad daylight. Uh, the citizens of Guangzhou fought back and surprisingly, they managed to push out the paratroopers and they held the city for uh, about a week. So it became a mini Paris commune, you could say. They self-organized uh, with food, taking care of the wounded, the dead, even publishing an informal newspaper. After one uh, week, the military came back and they crashed the uprising completely and even more blood was shed. One of the starting points of this uprising, which for many people uh, was the beginning of the democratic movement uh, in South Korea, was uh, a night school that took place in the local bookshop called Noktu in the months preceding the uh, uprising. And it was this bookshop that Dora Garcia was reconstruction, reconstructing as her contribution to the uh, 11th Guangzhou Biennale. So not only was it a facsimile, three-dimensional, it also uh, tried to reconstruct as much as possible the books that were available back then, as well as relevant contemporary art books. Uh, Dora Garcia called it a functional fiction, uh, and it was used as a meeting place during the biennial. It um, was also a meeting with uh, the owner of the bookshop at the time in 1980. So this is a work that condenses what this biennial is about in terms of thinking of it among the world biennials. It's a memorial to the uprising because when democracy eventually came to South Korea in the mid 90s, some people in the municipality of Guangzhou decided to, instead of making a statue or the like commemorating the uprising, uh, a cultural event should be created, the biennial, which ever since then has happened uh, every two years. So where are we? We are in Guangzhou, in the Guangzhou Biennale Exhibition Hall in the outskirts of the city. And it's a purpose-built exhibition space for the first 1995 uh, biennial, two giant white shoeboxes, if you wish. And when they were built, this was uh, a green area with no housing surrounded it. Uh, this has changed rapidly, so now it's in the middle of a residential area, not unlike Tensta Konstal, where I used to be the director, a suburb of Stockholm uh, with late modernist housing. A lot of what we could call modest everyday life goes on around the biennial building. And a street full of shops and restaurants is uh, neighboring it. And this became an interesting and important aspect for the biennial. So it is certainly important whom you work with. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to put together a curatorial team with Bina Choi as the curator, Asdar Mamoudian, Margarida Mendes, and Michelle Wong as assistant curators. And we chose not to circulate promo photographs of ourselves, but we asked the artist Bernd Krauss to portray us. And he decided to do it through 
our hairstyles. And we were interested in embedding the biennial in the city. We were interested in working closely with artists. And uh, we selected 30 artists whose practices we found strong, relevant, even urgent. Those 30 artists were invited to make site visits in order to make new work. Uh, we tended to bring them together in groups, uh, which created a certain sense of, of community, let's say, because they could then also follow each other's uh, development in terms of the projects. And uh, once they were there, we took them around, they met a number of local uh, people uh, here, uh, a guided tour of the strong tradition of wooden architecture in the city. And keeping in mind that we were interested in mediating art um, intensively in the biennial, and we thought of the production locally as part of that mediation. Mediation is not only something that is added at the end when works are on display, but it actually starts the moment the artist comes for a site visit, but also continues when the work is being made through local workshops or craftspeople or whoever it is that is involved. We kicked off the biennial nine months before the official exhibition opening, which was in September of 2016. So once a month from January, we gathered for a weekend with, uh, for instance, such site visits by artists, but also events in collaboration with a local artist collective called Mite Ugro. They at the time had a small space in an old market. Um, and that became the hub for the monthly gatherings. Uh, we also had artist screenings. So artists who were invited could also share some of their earlier work. And we asked everybody who was coming to bring publications because uh, the local art collective complained about the difficulty in getting recent books and catalogs connected to contemporary art. And this became the beginning of the Mite Ugro art book collection. And we continued throughout the year and uh, after the biennial, this collection was uh, donated to one of the local universities. We uh, did readings uh, from the books. Um, so a group of, of local artists and uh, the curatorial team selected texts uh, that were read and discussed. Curated walks in the city, uh, a way of, of getting to know uh, the place from uh, the perspective of the locals. This particular tour was about um, gentrification uh, of uh, Guangzhou. So here you can begin to understand the methodology in terms of trying to be present quite a long time before the actual exhibition. Instead of um, creating a special department within the biennial, like an education department, we proposed an infra school. So inviting ourselves, or rather inviting a number of universities and academies in Korea to host 
events, collaborate with us on them uh, with the visiting artists, but also with the curatorial team. So instead of concentrating everything to the biennial, the foundation, the organizer, instead to try and actually go out and talk about um, the different uh, projects that were being started in a number of different locations, including non-art specific um, contexts like the Seoul National University Asia Center, but also a small self-organized uh, art school in Seoul called the Rat School of Art, which is run by artists for artists, where there were a number of, of uh, super nice um, artist presentations. I mentioned the neighborhood around the biennial building. Um, we came in, we had less than a year to prepare. Obviously, there is only so much you can do in terms of uh, getting in touch with the the neighbors, the local inhabitants. Um, but we asked the Biennial Foundation, which obviously has been there since 1995, if they could draw on their contacts. And uh, that became a series of tea times, tea time with the Biennale. And it turned out that many people living next door or working in the shops um, had not had any contact with the Biennale. So these, um, small informal uh, gatherings uh, were based on people asking questions and sharing comments uh, about the neighborhood, but also about the biennial itself. So approaching the opening of the Biennale, uh, having done all these things for nine months, everybody was expecting a firework the crescendo, etc., and all the focus from the side of the foundation, but also of the media, was on what was going on inside these uh, two white shoe boxes. We, as the curators and many of the artists, felt that that was certainly important, but there were also many other things going on um, with artworks happening in the city, and the big banner on the left uh, was in a way, advertising one of the commissions, a film by Meta Haven. And this film could only be viewed online. So that made uh, an artwork, a major new artwork by Meta Haven available to anybody across the world with a good enough internet connection and the right kind of equipment. And it was then available for uh, two months and it was not at all shown inside the actual exhibition. And now I'm going to take you through the uh, biannual. In order to enter after having bought your ticket, you uh, pass through this uh, curtain made of uh, metal chains by Ruth Buchanan, and you were greeted by Agnieszka Polska's uh, champagne glass with oil with uh, Anne Listlegard's uh, Speaking Owl, um, a work by Trevor Paglen, which is hard to discern here, and Dora Garcia's Noctu Bookshop. This first gallery uh, was chaotic. It was intense. When you entered as a viewer, uh, it was hard to really understand what was going on. And that was uh, on purpose. Um, 
I wanted to have a sense of, for the visitor to be uh, quite overwhelmed. And what you would encounter was uh, works by uh, several of the 100 artists that were invited. I mentioned 30 artists making new works. In this material, we saw patterns, uh, we saw strands that we wanted to elaborate on and delve into. Um, so one of them was the right to opacity, artists dealing with, uh, with abstraction in different ways. Another one was above and below ground, um, artists addressing struggles over land and natural resources. The labor point of view, showing a persistent engagement of artists with the changing conditions of work and the effect on daily life and DIY techniques. New subjectivities was another one. So the additional 70 artists were selected with existing works and for all the 100 artists, the works were often crossing over several of these strands, but they helped us think through the whole body of uh, works within the biennial. And in the first gallery, those strands were intermingled, which really emphasized the um, slightly uh, chaotic impression. And then you would go upstairs and you would find a completely different atmosphere. In uh, a dark space, a black carpet, black curtains, black seating furniture, and the works on view here were works that in themselves contained light. And that was more or less the only light in the space. So the artworks themselves lit uh, the space. No walls here either. Uh, this was in a way an old dream of mine to uh, see what would happen if you brought together particularly video works without containing them in black boxes. For a while at that time, I had had a bit of a hard time accepting that videos almost always want to be by themselves. They close themselves into their own spaces. It's understandable. We speak about light conditions, sound conditions, etc. But what if they can still coexist in one space so that you also can see more than one of them at the time? And that was what happened in here. You entered and you sat down in front of one of them, but you would always in the corner of your eye see another work. Uh, we tried to contain the sound. Uh, it wasn't uh, perfect, but I think it worked uh, reasonably well. A third gallery where there was, uh, where there was uh, no, uh, general light, actually. Each work made up its own zone. The works that were zones were placed on the floor, nothing on the walls, and they were only lit by spotlights. DIY, Michel Beutler's uh, work referring um, or manifesting, if you wish, the uh, strand of the labor point of view, a self-made machine that can make building blocks out of discarded paper as a simple way of recycling material that can actually literally uh, construct 
simple buildings. And gallery four, this was the only gallery where there was only one strand, the right to opacity. So a lot of work uh, involving abstraction and opacity, which is something that I have researched uh, for a number of years and which I think is one of the most um, interesting ways of working of, of the last uh, couple of decades actually, partly because it's rather unexpected. Why would artists start to use abstraction? We thought for a long time that it was an obsolete um, language and aesthetic category. On the contrary, it has returned um, and not least in relation to Edouard Glissant, the Martinican philosopher's um, proposal of uh, the right to opacity. So the right not to be transparent, the right not to be legible, the right not to be uh, measured, weighed, counted, etc. The way uh, colonizers have almost always uh, treated the colonized. So in the different galleries with the different atmospheres, with the different methods of, of organizing the space, we were hoping for that still each artwork uh, would have its own um, moment in the limelight as it were, that it would be possible to also focus on what that artwork was uh, doing, because that was of course part of the biennial, the eighth climate, what does art do? If it is this uh, interzone between um, the real and the imaginary, between the earthly and the heavenly, where actually uh, very concrete imaginative things uh, can take place, then it is also important how this is happening in and through each artwork. So that was at least the ambition. Before I conclude, I just want to say that um, there's always, always so much that is already there. Um, if you make a, a big biennial, you, in our case, we came all as, as outsiders. Uh, Bin, of course, is... Um, from uh, Korea. And uh, one of the things we were interested in was also to think about what can we actually uh, involve uh, locally. So the collaboration with Mite Ugro, the local artist collective was uh, fantastic. Um, another thing which we more or less appropriated was um, a pavilion, a folly. The Biennial Foundation has a series of uh, follies that they have commissioned from architects over the last 20 years. And we found that Eyal Weizmann's folly was particularly interesting and one of the few still standing. Uh, it's connected to his research on roundabout revolutions, how revolutions over uh, several uh, decades have tended to take place on and around roundabouts, including the May 18 uprising in Kwangju, obviously. This uh, folly has been uh, closed for many years and uh, we managed to convince the foundation to clean it, to fix the broken parts and to keep it open uh, during uh, this edition of the biennial. And in that way, it also became part of the biennial. Not to forget to all the contributing factors. 
So whereas we wanted to think about art uh, and what art does, um, its imaginative, projective uh, abilities, if you wish, uh, and also the embeddedness of art, the mediation of art, we wanted to think about how to highlight what so many institutions are doing across the world in terms of these things. Placing art center stage, thinking about how art sits in a particular neighborhood, uh, specifically uh, neighborhoods which are also um, housing areas or living areas. So we coined the term Biennale Fellows and uh, we asked 100 small and medium-sized visual arts organizations that do the, the things I mentioned, if they would agree to become Guangzhou Biennale Fellows. And that meant only that we pointed to them, we highlighted them. We wanted to uh, make their work just a little bit more visible through our communication. Um, they didn't have to change their programming. They didn't have to show anything connected to the biennial. Um, and then we gathered 60 of them for the opening weekend for this event, which was called to all the contributing factors. So it became a big gathering of people, some of them with, with a lot of similarities and others not. Um, and um, this is something that I'm still thinking of as a, as a sleep cell almost or sleeping network uh, people who exist and do fantastic things all over the world they don't always get a lot of attention or credit where they are um, but um, they are somehow ready to connect um, at some moment in time uh, because uh, mediation was so important I just wanted to mention that of course the traditional things were done uh, docent course, uh, docent tours, uh, all the artists were present, 90 artists out of the 100 came and they all did brief presentations of their works in front of the works and of course the curators also did that. A lot of this has been uh, collected in the publication designed by Meta Haven. So please, uh, if you can lay your hands on that, it's really valuable. And there is also a website, it's still up uh, with a lot of material around the artworks, the events, etc. And my final slide is this one, in case you want to look further into some of these issues, which um, at least in my head, uh, keep uh, rolling. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender and Nature, FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit detank.ch. That's detank.ch. Or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's 
info.kunst.hdk.fhnw.ch Moderated and curated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. Editing and voiceover Elena Ziesar. Music Niklas Kammermeier. Research Team Marion Ritzmann, Tabea Rotfuchs and Alice Wilke. Press and Communication Anna Franke and Sarina Scheidegger. Technical support by Karin Bohrer, Chris Handberg, Esther Hunziger and Konrad Siegel. Copyright by Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW 2022.